Hey everyone, this is Risky Business. I'm Patrick Gray and I'm back on deck and it is, uh, yeah, it's great to be back in front of a microphone after a couple of weeks off. Uh, we will be chatting with Adam all about the security news in just a minute and then we'll be hearing from Chris Hughes from Aquia about uh, vulnerability prioritization. Now, Chris isn't a sponsor, but he was sent to us by this week's sponsor, uh, which is Nucleus Security and it's a great interview, that one, and I do hope you'll stick around for it. But yeah, Adam... Let's get into it, mate. And um, the typical thing happened uh, when we went on break because within 30 hours, two major news stories uh, broke. One always of which, the way. Always the way. Uh, one of which like everybody knows about and one of which kind of bizarrely went a little bit under the radar and I feel like we need to throw a bit of a light onto that one. But uh, let's talk all things 3CX. Yes, so 3CX is a company that makes voice over IP equipment, you know, pretty common in big call centers and enterprise networks. Uh, and the vendor of the software, 3CX, uh, appears to have been compromised by uh, North Koreans hunting for cryptocurrency. Uh, they uh, got in somehow. We don't know exactly. I, I can't believe you just. I can't believe you just put the punchline at the start. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Because initially um, it's like, oh, major massive supply chain attack and everyone, you know, because I think it was, what, Sentinel-1? This whole thing kicked off from Sentinel-1 uh, yes. detections, right? Yeah, yeah. So the um, customers of 3CX uh, in the forums had noticed that their Sentinel-1 was going off, you know, when they were updating the software and someone posted and said, hey, 3CX, maybe you want to look into this. And they said, eh, that sounds like a Sentinel-1 problem. You know, they're clearly, did, you know, false positiving on, on our software when in fact their software had been backdoored. Uh, so, yeah, that, that didn't play out so well. Uh, but, yes, eventually we figured out that it had been backdoored. Uh, and this is a, a company with, like, 600,000 customers or something. Yeah. Like it was a you know, very potentially very, very big. But, like, then I yeah. suppose I did ruin the... You ruined the punchline. You I totally ruin ruined... You put the horse before <laughs> the cart. And, uh, yeah, in the end, it turns out it was North Koreans and they were going after a very limited number of, like, cryptocurrency-related targets, which is so funny, you know? It's like yeah. solar winds, but just really dumb. <laughs> I think the reporting said they, they had targeted something like 10 machines actually got the final, like, full, well, full service okay, payload. Okay. So but Kaspersky did a report yes. saying that it had observed that it hit, like, a dozen machines, right? But that does not mean that only a dozen machines were hit. That was just yes. what they saw, right? But yeah. it does look like it was a really limited number of targets and they were just after <laughs> magic internet money. Yeah, which, you know, I guess that's the thing this that is they the, need. This is the nation state equivalent for those kids who drop crypto miners on compromised, like AWS instances <laughs> and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, obviously it could have been so much bigger and worse. And of course, you know, there may be other people who knows, but yeah, that's a, that's a lot of machines that you could have popped uh, and, uh, and chose not to. So, moral of the story, you know, at the end of the day, nothing of value was harmed, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except the poor North Koreans who, uh, you know, got busted doing it unless they managed to steal a whole bunch of crypto in the process. Now, obviously, the 3CX one, it was like everybody's favorite story on, on Twitter for a week, right? Like, as everyone figured out all of the ins and outs of the malware and, you know, how it got around and how it was infiltrated and, you know, who the targets were and stuff like that. But, you know, while all this was happening, Wiz dropped some research. Uh, Wiz Security obviously do a lot on, uh, you know, uh, cloud security stuff. A lot of ex-Microsoft people there as well. And they dropped some research that was just, I found, absolutely staggering. And I was amazed that just hardly anyone paid attention to it. Yeah, I, I saw this one go past. I pasted it in the you know work chat at CyberCX and there was a lot of, you know, open face emojis because like, <laughs> dang, what a bug. Uh, yeah. so they, but it's not um, even just the bug. It's like, it's, it's it's like what you could do with it. Like, my God, you know, dog fooding is great, but you can take it too far. And that's what this story is about. <laughs> uh, so when you, when you deploy an app in Azure, one of the things you can do is obviously use Azure AD and, and Microsoft's authentication stack uh, to manage that for you. And there's a series of, of options which are like who should be able to use this application? Anybody on the internet, people who are auth by AD, people who are auth by other identity systems, inside your tenant, outside your tenant, etc. And one of the options for this is anyone uh, you know, in Microsoft Azure world can use your application. And that was turned on for uh, an application called like the Microsoft CMS, like Bing Trivia application. So it was some content management system that was meant to, you know, do something for Bing. Uh, and that had been set multi-tenant. And what that meant was anyone who was auth to Azure anywhere 
could just log into this thing, and, and the researcher from Wiz did that. And then from there, it turns out it wasn't just trivia, like some quiz thing. You could actually just like straight up edit Bing search results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually added uh, the 1995 classic movie Hackers uh, to be the number one result when searching for best movie soundtracks, which I, for one, am here for. That was a, it was a great movie soundtrack. Um, <laughs> And like, as if that wasn't bad enough, like just being able to and edit the results really And it was best, best soundtracks, by the way, not just best movie soundtracks. Best none of these, none of so these yes. t- three-word search terms, Adam. Just best soundtracks. <laughs> so not only was that bad enough, but you could also from here uh, call into an API to get uh, access tokens onwards uh, into anybody's Azure account. Mm. Um, so. Like how many listeners have all of their corporate lives uh, in in Azure and Azure AD backed? Yeah, you you could just log into anyone's stuff. Yeah, and you could um, also you could also deploy like cross site scripting um, uh, via this app onto Bing search results and like yes. start grabbing people's cookies and things like that. Yeah, like this yeah, is yeah, just yeah. like, can you imagine if some like Bond villain type? Did this research instead of whiz like talk about yeah. impact? My God, man! I mean, you could imagine a you know like lol sex slash lapsus slash you know one of those you know internet punk kid groups. You would just like it would be utter chaos and it would be amazing. But also, yeah, if you were you know a genuine bad actor, then like this 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 is a hell of a bar. Yeah, so you're thinking of like lapsus. Yes. And I'm thinking thinking of, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so they, um, uh, Microsoft asserts they're going to fix it. Uh, Some people have pointed out that if they just changed it to be not multi-tenanted, anybody at Microsoft could still do this. So probably not an adequate fix. Um, But yeah, it's just very easy when you are using such flexible cloud services that, you know, you can build anything on the internet out of. It's just very easy to miss the importance of one radio button, you know, in a config dialogue somewhere. But I mean, I, I, mean sudden, the, the, I think another thing is, right, when you're using Azure AD, there is one Azure AD. It's not like yes. you get your own Azure AD. Uh, there is one and this is what can happen because you're yeah. using one. I mean, I'm yeah. just... Ah, uh. oh dear. So anyway, they, they went and followed up this research and went and looked for other applications in the Azure that were configured that way. And they said that approximately 25% of multi-tenant apps that they scanned were vulnerable to this technique. So it's like, it's funny because it hit Bing and they found it on Bing, but there are so many other things that you could have used this bug for. Um, and I'm not 100% sure how Microsoft is fixing this for like yeah. for everybody else. And but they, you know, I, yeah. What, you're going to just turn it off for people? I mean, people have probably set it stuff. that way for a reason as well, right? So, so, like, this is just one yeah. of those things where it's it's this huge mess. It's a high-impact huge mess. And I don't know. It sort of felt weird that, like, this got 24 hours in the InfoSec, you know, Twitter news cycle and 3CX got a week. Like, I, yeah. it, it just seems weird to me, right? Yeah, no, it absolutely And, of course, it happens does. when I'm on holiday, so I have to watch social media going, why aren't you talking about this other thing over here that's way more interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, they also went through a bunch of other Microsoft apps that were you know configured in the same way. Like you can send emails out, um, you can use their notification service to push stuff. There's just a heap of stuff in there, and like this is as you said, this is what happens when you use a cloud service, right? It's very powerful and it's very easy to misconfig it and not realize, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, and even you know, even if you've got you know security testers looking at the stuff, like it's just moved so quickly that keeping up with what's the current state of play, you know, you really have to be super focused on AWS stack or Azure stack or whatever else to understand all the things that can go wrong. But yeah, definitely when I first saw this, I'm like, no, that can't be right. Like, you know, you read the first couple of paras and you're like, no, that's not that's nah, not right. Like, that's not. They're, they're being a bit misleading here, you know. And then you keep reading and you're like, oh my god. Yeah. What? Uh, um, so the look, real... there's a link. There's a link to this one in in the show notes for people to to go read it. And if yeah. you haven't heard about this and and had a look at it, you you should. You know, because it's yeah, it's, a, it's a yes. it's a pretty mortifying read. Yeah, it really is. And um, yeah, the technical blog is great. If you're in the testing business in the cloud business, absolutely have a read of it. Uh, the real turd at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the piece though, you know, as Microsoft paid them for this, the bug bounty program, 40, 40 grand, yeah. 40 grand US, that's all that's worth. Like, come on, don't be yeah. so stingy, Microsoft. This is a planet melter. Yeah. And, you know, 
God, can you just oh, It's imagine? not like Wiz is struggling for cash, though. You know what well, I mean? Okay, like, but, if, but still, you if know, If this was on. one of our mates, we could we could kick up a bit of a stink about them yeah. being stingy with the with the uh, bug bounty payment. But, you know, it's got to burn as well for Microsoft to give a bunch of its former cloud security people, <laughs> like, any bounty at all. Probably, probably does, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, that's yeah. the thing about Wiz, right? Like, they know where the bodies are buried. They used to work mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it looks so. like it. So, I'm sure we, we'll look forward to many more. Thanks, Wiz. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, uh, staying with Microsoft stuff uh, Microsoft has uh, teamed up with the you know the merchant of doom Fortra uh, to <laughs> apparently disrupt the illicit use of cobalt strike and it looks like really this is just uh, you know via legal action and coordination with ISPs to take down c2s and things like that but there is a, a at least a serious initiative underway between yeah Fortra obviously uh, owns cobalt strike these days uh, so there's a serious initiative underway between Fortra and Microsoft to do something about this problem um you know hard to know how much of an impact it will have it will clean up you would imagine a lot of the you know low altitude flyers um but perhaps not some of the more advanced groups that use cobalt strike as their preferred uh, you know c2 framework yeah, I mean, there's certainly quite a bit of uh, fiddle setting up a, a robust Cobalt Strike infrastructure that's not easily fingerprintable and is, and can be used for, you know, for offence well. So some cooperation between Fortran and Microsoft is definitely good uh, to help with targeting. And Microsoft has a you know, history of doing, you know, domain takedowns via legal means. So it's, a, you know, a match well made. But I think at some point Fortran is going to have to consider at either adding, uh, like, remote kill switch to the server side um, or claiming that they did, even if they didn't, just to spook people. But so I mean, some... these are old versions, right? So there's not much you can do about that. I mean, yeah, even I mean, if you did do that, you're still going to need to wait for the old stuff to age out, and that'll take a while. Because Windows... Yeah, it, it, it will, but I mean, like six months from now, uh, that would be a handy place to be. Six months? Well, okay, maybe longer, but you know what I mean. Like <laughs> I mean it, I'm thinking more it, like 16, 20 years, right? Well, maybe, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully there's enough bugs in it that uh, you know, you'll know you be able to shell them <laughs> in yeah. a, a versions that old. So, anyway, I just feel like you know at some point Fortress should take some you know, proactive yeah. steps. I Look, I agree with you, but I just don't know how much good it would do. And I think something like this initiative, it's ugly, it's time-consuming, it's expensive, but it's probably the right approach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely going to work, um, as you say, for the low-hanging flyers, but, uh, you know, there's plenty of other people out there using it you know, yeah. behind proxies and in more defensible ways. Yeah, now, look, staying with Microsoft, uh, they published an uh, interesting write-up here on uh, Mercury and Dev 1084, um, and they've written up a uh, what looks to be a, a destructive attack on a hybrid environment, right? So we got this crew, it was an Iranian government-linked crew, uh, broke into someone's, you know, on-prem environment, uh, wound up going through up into the cloud environment via the uh, Azure AD like connect um, uh, thingy and um, torched their their Azure uh, uh, tenant as well, tenancy as well. And, um, you know, it's just this, this one's a pretty harrowing read, I guess, because it's just like, you know, when you've got a capable actor that's looking to just cause you damage. Um, yeah, there's plenty of options. And I, I, I guess this one's novel because of the because um, of the Azure component. Because, you know, these days, like, it's not like we're just using storage buckets in cloud, right? And it's not like we're just using simple, uh, you know, like AWS instances, right? Or, of some Linux box or something that you, you've got backed up somewhere. These days, they're highly configured environments. And, you know, backing them up isn't really that simple anymore, I guess, is, is, is my feeling. But I don't know. You tell me. You've got more experience looking at these environments than I do. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting tale. I mean, we've certainly seen people go, you know, from on-prem up to cloud. That makes a bunch of sense. Uh, but doing it as part of, like, in this case, like, they logged in, they deleted a whole bunch of instances, they deleted a bunch of configuration, they stole tokens to be able to get access to email, rummage through the mailboxes, etc. Like, they used the cloud uh, and Azure as it was meant to be used. And at the very least... You know, we will see these kinds of approaches trickle down into financially motivated, you know, ransomware and crime groups because it makes sense to do it. Uh, and you know, there's plenty of organisations that look at the cloud and go, "Okay, well, this is Microsoft's problem." Without, as you say, understanding this, this is not just a bunch of machines that are easy to back up. There's configuration. There's you know, even getting the config out of Azure and so on. Um, or you know, there's not that many organisations that have a you know a Terraform or some you know automatic mechanism for building 
their cloud environments to enough detail that you'd be able to restore services quickly yeah. if you got torched. That's kind uh, of what I'm getting at, right? Like you can't just hit the rollback button on these yeah. sorts of environments anymore because they're not just simple things like a few instances and a couple of storage buckets, right? Like yeah, it's, like yeah. yeah, I've seen organizations say, well, we don't have to worry about ransomware because we use SharePoint and 365 and everything's version. It's like, yes, but we've seen attackers go around, configure the amount of saved versions of a file down to one and then overwrite the file. Mm. So that you can't just roll it back to an to an earlier version. So as the attackers get more au fait with the cloud services and what's possible, then we start to see it being used as a point of leverage post compromise. And I think you know, looking at this attack, and Microsoft's written it up really well. And it's I think anyone who is reliant on being in the cloud for a significant portion of you know feeling safe at night and sleeping, probably worth reading this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I do wonder too because I do think it. it Tell me if you felt the same way reading this, which is you just get this uneasy feeling when you're like, okay, threat actors are getting pretty good at this stuff. Yeah. And you just yes. wonder like, okay, so it starts with the APT groups. You know, eventually this is going to trickle down to some of the, the dumb asses, right? And they're going to start ransoming, ransomwaring some of these, uh, uh, you know, some of these cloud setups. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I mean, it's, you know, Active Directory on-prem is what really facilitated making ransomware viable and... Azure Active Directory and all of the other, you know, cloud services mm. are going to, you know, facilitate a future, you know, uh, ability to use it for leverage in ways that right now we don't imagine. Yeah, I mean, that said, I mean, they've just got such well-established tradecraft in terms of uh, rinsing on-prem environments that you do. Yeah, they do now, yeah. Yeah, so you do sort of wonder if they if they need to. Um, but I guess the yeah, point is they, they, they probably can. Yeah, they can, and you know, as people move more and more cloud, like it makes sense they're going to follow where the data is and where the leverage is. So anyway, I yeah. think it's just like this is a great story, and thanks Microsoft for writing it up in pretty good detail, and also explaining how they spotted it and and what sort of you know um, uh, options you've got for detecting this kind of stuff, you know, yeah. in your environment and so on and so forth. Uh, Fancy Bear apparently were hitting a whole bunch of Ukrainian routers, uh, limited targets in Europe and the US as well, but they were hitting Cisco routers with like SNMP bugs from 2017. Uh, this is according to CISA and uh, Cisco. This is interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, they were seen using a couple of techniques. One is like straight up just requesting the SNMP data from the device using default community strings or passwords, etc. which, I mean, that's a that's a classic technique. Everyone's uh, SNMP walked with public uh, a router at some point in their infosec career, I'm sure. Uh, and then the Cisco bug they were using was a like a buffer overflow in the SNMP processing backend of um, Cisco iOS XE routers, which are just kind of Linux boxes underneath. Um, and yeah, as you said, that was patched in 2017. But you know, people don't necessarily update the, the you know, operating system on their routing devices particularly often. Well, and I think know. I think that's why this one's worth talking about is because yes. they were making hay out of a out of a Cisco CVE from 2017. You know. Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, I I don't know there was a public exploit for that bug. I did have a quick rummage, mm. uh, and I didn't see one. It does appear to require that you know the community string or the password for SMPv3 to be able to hit the buffer overflow. Um, so. You know, if you've got routers on the internet with strong SNMP creds, then probably you got away without patching it. But maybe there's some other aspect, some other info disclosure. Maybe there's something else um, that they've got that's facilitating this particular set of attacks. But what were they doing once they were on these devices? That's the part that I'm curious about. Yeah, there isn't hasn't been any particular details about what happened post intrusion. Obviously, being on a router gets you access to all the network stuff, gets you access to VPN creds and whatever else if they happen to be. If it's know, a VPN concentrator, if, right, if yeah. it's got VPN details on it or whatever else. Um, I mean, tromboning the traffic out to sniff it somewhere else and putting it back again is also an option. Bypassing doesn't get you as much as it used to though. That's the that's kind of why no. I was although that's it with iOS XE, like those are straight up Linux boxes underneath. So you've also got all of the normal options that you would yeah. have you know if you compromised the box on the perimeter yeah like getting onwards. getting persistence somewhere on someone's network is yes. always a good time right so yeah exactly yeah uh now we've had a bunch of spyware news too over the last couple of weeks uh there was a report that came out from citizen lab and microsoft threat intelligence um they published detailed reports on an Israeli spyware company called Quadream, uh, which, uh, you know, according to this write-up from James Reddick at the record, had kept a uh, low public profile since its founding in 2016. Well, that low pu uh, public profile is is gone. Uh, Quadream apparently has shut down um, at least its Israeli operations uh, because of these reports. Now, it looked like 
they were already having trouble. Uh, there'd been a big crackdown in Israel of the granting of export licenses for this sort of stuff, although apparently with Netanyahu's return, that's turning around again and, and, and ex- export licenses are starting to flow. Uh, but this company had been losing uh, team members to competitors and, and whatnot. So they were already in trouble. And I think this this series of reports was kind of the final straw. Although, I don't know if this means they're completely gone or if they're just relocating their, their operations. The tools that they were dropping, the like mobile like iOS malware and stuff, was pretty good. Like they had some, some you know, it was reasonable engineering. They had some good tricks to avoid leaving uh, tells on the devices for forensic investigators to find. Uh, and they were using um, the, a similar like zero-click um, O'Day that NSO group were peddling uh, at about the same time for iOS 14. I think they're like calendar invite-based one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, they were selling something that worked pretty well. Uh, and, you know, there's a few, you know, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to hand it to them, but it looked pretty good when people were talking it up on uh, InfoSec Mastodon. Yeah, and of course they were going after, you know, as you briefly mentioned there, journalists, political opposition figures, and an NGO worker. Uh, so, you know, yes. typical scummy targeting, right? Yeah, from, all, all the usual, you know, only, we only sell to trusted law enforcement targets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we got another report too from, uh, I think, TAG. So TAG talked about a Spanish spyware company back in 2022, and now they've published a report. Uh, the company's called uh, Veriston. And uh, now the company's latest report says they've seen those tools being used in the UAE. Uh, so that's just an interesting data point uh, there. But Adam, some good news in the in the sort of realm of spyware. A uh, NSO exploit was apparently blocked in the wild by lockdown mode, which even threw like a pretty little notification at the user saying, "Hey, we stopped uh, we stopped something bad uh, from happening." So it's nice to see some proof in the wild that lockdown mode is at least doing something. Yeah, I'm reducing the amount of attack services, you know, clearly a thing that has always helped um, at preventing bad stuff happening. But yeah, it's just nice to see some actual concrete example of, you know, someone ran lockdown mode and did not get popped uh, by NSO. This is from some research from Citizen Lab where they looked at a bunch of uh, iOS zero day that they had responded to uh, in the wild. And yeah, one of them blocked by lockdown mode. So. Yeah, and we don't know if, I mean, because they looked at a few different exploits here, we don't know if the other ones succeeded against lockdown mode or if those ones that they're talking about were targeting people who weren't using it and it just happened to yes. be the person who was running lockdown mode got targeted with this one uh, that did trigger it. So, so, you know, a little bit hazy on exactly the details, but certainly lockdown mode does drastically reduce the attack surface um, on an iOS device. I run it. Um, <clears throat> it stuns me that other people I know who should run it don't um, because they say it just introduces a little bit too much friction to the user experience. I don't find it too bad, um, but it is, yeah, it's just a, a great thing to see. So that's nice. Uh, now, moving on to some different news. Uh, the United States government is sending $25 million uh, to Costa Rica to help it recover from that massive ransomware attack that uh, hit it last year. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, is good news, and I'm sure especially well-received uh, in Costa Rica. You know, they had a lot of trouble, and, um, you know, some help from the United States has the necessary skills and resources, I, you know, I, I'm sure will be very well-received. Um, and we are seeing this kind of, you know, assistance being used as a tool of diplomacy, I mean, certainly here in our region in the, in the South Pacific, you know, similarly with, uh, with Tonga, for example, Australia reached out to provide some help there. So, you know, kind of makes sense. Um, and you know, re- you know, realizing that smaller countries you know, just don't necessarily have the skills and resources to tidy up after an incident like this. Yeah, I mean, this is a topic that uh, Tom Uren and I have been talking about quite a bit in Seriously Risky Business in that in that podcast. And I think th- there's an interesting thing at play here, which is that it's great that Cyber Command can do hunt forward. Um, but that's a bit scary for a lot of countries, right? So when you look at yes. it, the Asia Pacific region. Um, you know, do you want to send ASD into some of these countries? Like, they're, they're not going to want that, right? Uh, yeah. But can you send people from DFAT, uh, which is our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade? Um, yeah, you you can probably do that, uh, and, and it's less scary. And I'd imagine it's the same with Costa Rica, right? Like, do you do you want the U.S. military coming in, uh, coming in and, and messing around with your computers, or are you going to take an assistance package from the State Department? And and in fact, the State Department and Congress are now working on on formalizing a program for what they're calling cyber aid, right? And I, I think this is a really positive thing because it can't all be military and intelligence agencies that give assistance in in, in these in these cases, right? Because it's just not politically tenable 
for a lot of the people who would like to make use of the assistance. Yeah, yeah, I think that there, there are some nuances here that I hadn't really appreciated. So, for example, um, if the aid is coming through the kind of civilian side, through State Department, etc., that there are some constraints about that aid then being used in military contexts in the recipient country. And so, in some cases, like the, the military in the, in the victim countries are probably involved in that response. And so, there's just a bunch of, of complexity there that they uh, have to think about. Um, and, yeah, it's good to see them working through those details so that yeah, there is better options to help other countries beyond, as you say, Hunt Ford and Albania or whatever else. Yeah. Now, look, Adam, uh, breakthrough here, an absolute breakthrough. Uh, three United States agencies, including CISA, uh, cybersecurity authorities from Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, Germany, the Netherlands and New Zealand have got together and they've come up with a way, mate, to to fix what ails us. <laughs> <laughs> right? They've figured it yes. out. They've figured it out. They have. They've written a document which which is a bunch of guiding principles for secure software development and, you know, things that software companies should aspire to. And they've released it, Adam. Uh, so I think we've discovered what's been missing uh, from our, you know, cybersecurity mix all these years, which is governments haven't asked software <laughs> software makers, <laughs> could you please just do a better job? And uh, that's what they've done here. So problem well, yes. solved. <laughs> Give yourselves a pat on the back. Uh, let's go get a beer. You know? uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny, but also, you know, we do have to tell them what we expect, right? And that is, in this case, uh, secure by design and secure by default. So having software development methodologies and testing approaches that try to make your software more robust and maybe not having the, like, require password checkbox turned off by default or something like that. So... Now, look, I'm, te- I'm teasing them, right? But this, this sort of guidance, I think it's useful when governments do this because it flags like, hey, if, you know, hypothetically in the future we were going to sort of regulate this sort of thing, mm-hmm. eh, this is maybe what it's going to look like. So I think software makers should pay attention to it for that reason. But it is pretty funny that they're just like putting it out there as like, hey, this is a way to make good software. Maybe that's cool. Yeah, no, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely long game stuff. It's going to take a while for you know this to kind of catch on. But also, it just helps when you're buying software to be able to say, "Hey, do you meet the requirements of this, or have you you know, have you heard of this document, um, and how does it apply to how you do software development in your organization?" That's always helpful, even if it is a very slow, very long time away that we'll see robust software. And obviously robust software is hard, mm. uh, but it's, it's a good it's a good step and they're good documents. And thank you for doing the work that the rest of us would probably go, or I could do something else this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Lily Hay Newman at uh, Wired reports that one of the major uh, ransomware crews look to be developing a macOS, uh, macOS uh, strain. I mean... You know, and the headline is Apple Macs have long escaped ransomware. That may be changing. I mean, I can't, I've lost count of the number of times we've said that about malware on Macs, right? Uh, every time yeah. like a, a sample pops up or whatever. But I think it is different when you've got the, the ransomware folks uh, where they can directly monetize this stuff in a pretty high impact way. And you just sort of think, well, you know, maybe it is um, uh, a, a bad sign that we're seeing, you know, MacOS ransomware pop up in VirusTotal. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not super concerned for the same reasons that you've articulated. Like we've we've seen this with malware samples on macOS before. It's you know the, the other critical ingredient of ransomware has turned out to be things like Active Directory yeah. and big enterprise yeah. centrally managed environments, which are much less common for macOS users. And I you know it's been a while since I looked at what Apple's directory service product looks like. Well, you do it you do it through MDM right? And there's plenty of bugs in MDM stuff and they touch Mac, right? So you would think that the path to ransomwareing a fleet of Macs would be going through MDM. Go, yeah, going through the, the actual iOS devices and stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see. No, I'm, I'm sure talking about MDM that manages actual Mac OS. Oh, right. Okay. Like desktop management. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but they still call it MDM, which is annoying. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you know <laughs> what I mean? But yeah, anyway, like something like, you know, even in Microsoft Intune, for example, we've seen that being used to deploy stuff onto Windows devices, there's also in tune for Mac. There is, so, yeah. That's yeah, kind of what I mean. Yeah, like right. endpoint management then, okay, Mr. Pattern. Endpoint yes. But yeah. <laughs> M and M, the M stands for mobile. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. You know. Uh, but no, this sample not super great. Like apparently it crashes and, you know, it's not particularly effective. But yeah, it indicates intent. Um, and so, yeah, we may yeah. we may see it. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> God, who was it? It was Lockbit. Added Dark Trace to their leak site. 
which turned out to be a mistake because they had some data or something or they were trying to spook <laughs> someone who goes by the handle Dark Tracer. Uh, but anyway, that made for some interesting times at Dark Trace HQ. They're a security vendor, obviously, and um, yeah, they had to go and hunt around their network and see if there was any evidence of compromise and come out and say, well, we're as confused as we could yeah. possibly be uh, by this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, there was, there was certainly a lot of flailing around amongst you know Darktrace users, customers, etc. Well, um, people yeah, who just generally don't like them as well, um, yes. you know, because they're one of the, uh, you know, their marketing is all around artificial intelligence to stop cyber threats, right? So everyone was <laughs> loving the fact that they, they could have yeah. been owned, but no. Yeah, <laughs> but I think there's a company in Singapore called Darktracer, who does like um, OS intelligence and um, source intelligence and, and threat intel and stuff. Uh, and they had made fun of Lockbit for like testing and production because Lockbit was doing some test stuff and had left some test posts up on their site. Uh, and they were like questioning the reliability of Lockbit's services or whatever. And then the Lockbit, whoever was doing the work, just made up a post that said, lol, we see you watching our testing dark trace. And then everyone went nuts. Yeah. Um, and it was just mistaken identity. Um, so, yeah, funny until, uh, you know, people have to try and pull that mess apart at three o'clock in the morning to tell their customers whether their security vendor has been owned. Yeah. Fun times. Um, this one's kind of weird, <laughs> which is, you know, we've seen people offering like VPN services where they wind up routing you through compromised systems. Uh, we've now seen a bit of a twist on that, Adam. Uh, yes, we've seen so. There's a few a few organisations that will uh, pay you money to use your IP address, so you can like sell sell them the ability to route traffic through your box. They pay you like you know five bucks a month or something, um, which I didn't know was a thing, but totally makes sense now. Someone points it out, um, and we've also seen because now there's money involved. Because we've I, people, like you, probably enjoy being raided by uh, the federal police. <laughs> You know, yeah. for crimes I did not commit uh, for $5 yeah. a month. I mean, that's I, I enjoy it. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of like running a tour exit note, I guess. Like you do it for the Oh, it's so much worse. And, <laughs> but probably, probably worse. Yes, although there you get five bucks, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, because now there's money involved and we're now seeing people using bugs to steal access through boxes to then sell onwards to the, these, you know, rent an IP for money. Um, proxy services so yeah it's just a you know funny a robberous of you know crime eating itself um, yeah. in, on the internet yeah happy uh, happy happy times uh, yeah uh, Genesis Market got taken down as well while we were on break uh, 120 arrests good times uh, and the FBI were all up in their all up in their business as well yeah it certain, certainly looks like it um, this was one of the markets where they had like a, a custom browser where you could like uh, download a package from the forums that would configure your browser to mimic the victim who the credentials and cookies and whatever else have been stolen from so you could do pretty smooth um, you know attacks on web systems post auth you know, yeah. through cookie stealers and other people's browsers so pretty pretty cool uh, and quite popular but yes well and truly uh, popped by the feds and then the, the feds have been kind of deliberately vague about how much access they've had like the tour onion service version of the site stayed around for longer but no one's sure whether or not it's now run by the FBI and etc. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, usual yeah, sorts yeah. of you know confusion you uh, say to in, them you're uh, being coy the and they say am I <laughs> exactly yes exactly uh, but it's it's always great to be coy from a position of you know true smugness in a situation like this like it must be so satisfying <laughs> i imagine so yeah good times you know did you so, did you own our back end i don't know but that would be bad wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah the record did pick a particularly smug looking picture of uh, fbi director christopher yeah, ray uh, to use in the in the banner so. yeah yeah that's funny <laughs> Um, LinkedIn, finally, I mean, we've, we've known this was coming for a little while, but uh, LinkedIn are now offering sort of verification for, you know, your job and organization and whatnot. And, you know, this is a good response to um, a gargantuan amount of abuse that we've seen over LinkedIn, you know, all sorts of LinkedIn phishing and dodgy connections and whatnot. So yeah, some form of verification on the platform is good, especially when you've got other platforms like Twitter, which is going the other way, which is like you can now get a blue check, which doesn't actually verify your identity, but just verifies that you have eight bucks, right? So to see <laughs> to see Microsoft doing, and I think this is like domain-based validation, right? Yeah, this integrates with, uh, with Azure AD and stuff. Uh, so that Microsoft's whole identity, you know, portfolio is being leveraged here. So I think uh, it's not just necessarily domain-based, but it is right. kind of like if you are on the company AD, 
Microsoft can tie your LinkedIn profile to your AAD profile oh, from there. I didn't realize that. That's who you are. that's cool. That's cool. But yeah. can you do just like email-based domain validation as well? Or Because I think they were looking at that uh, for a while. I'm not actually sure. I mean, the, what I read about it only really talked about Corp as your AD, but Microsoft has been overhauling. They've got like a, a service called Verified ID now, yeah. which is meant to provide that as a service backed on Microsoft platforms. And presumably you can do it. Um, through other mechanisms as well. Well, I guess eventually they can start selling this verification information to Twitter yes. uh, when its next owners decide that they want to get back into the uh, you know <laughs> verified identity space. Uh, Rob yeah. Joyce has been quoted, uh, Martin Matashak has this one for the record, uh, Rob Joyce has been quoted uh, during an event as saying that um, they've been able to recruit some good people thanks to layoffs in, uh, in tech. And I know, look, Everyone I talk to in uh, in the IC, they all say the same thing, which is recruiting has has you know it's always been tough, but it's got way tougher over the last sort of five years, right? So things have been extremely tight, and um, it's nice to hear some comments from them saying that at least they've been able to actually hire people. That's nice. Yeah, it, it is. It's a nice a nice upside to what otherwise has been a pretty horrible experience for a lot of people. And you know, going into a place like the IC when you've come out of a you know capitalist pig. <laughs> tech world going into a place with actual mission uh, probably quite a nice change even if the money is less look if I sounded blase about layoffs uh, just then I'm sorry uh, but you've got to realise too that the um, the number of people hired by tech companies during COVID was just so insanely huge that these layoffs that we're seeing now are a fraction of the people who were sort of sucked into the to the tech world uh, during that time <laughs> and they overhired and there's still plenty of jobs to go around. That's why I don't feel like this is, you know, this is a, a topic that we have to speak about with, you know, grave sorrow, right? Like it's disruptive to people's lives when they get laid off. I know a few people who've been uh, caught up in this stuff, um, but they're finding other jobs, right? They're moving around. Um, the terms might not be as giddily insane as they were a couple of years ago, but, you know, it just doesn't seem like this is an employment disaster in the whole sector at the moment, right? Yeah, well, there's certainly plenty of work to be done. Um, I don't know, like we're hiring, so... Yeah. Um, Checkpoints pub published some research just like in the last 24 hours on a critical RCE in the Microsoft message queuing service. So this is like if you can access this service, it apparently listens on port, what is it, like 1080 or something? Uh, 1801. 1801. TCP. Wow, there you go. There was an 8 and a 1 in it. I was close. <laughs> um, but yeah, apparently if you can hit this port, you can uh, exploit this bug. I mean, the reason we're talking about it is because um, not much word on mitigations and whatnot. So, like, chances are, it's, it's, it was patched in April, patch Tuesday, right? Um, chances are mitigations make this thing a bit fiddly. But if it turns out then it's trivially exploitable, then it's, you know, it's wormable and we could be back here next week, um, you know, talking about the, the smoking ruins. <laughs> Yeah, the um, uh, the service is used, amongst other things, by Microsoft Exchange, or at least is installed as part of Exchange. I'm not sure whether it's actually used. Uh, so it's pretty common on on the internet. I mean, the showdown results today were 180,000 boxes. Uh, I think the researchers from Checkpoint said they'd seen upwards of 300,000 of these on the internet. And yeah, I haven't seen an exploit yet, so we don't know, like, whether you know whether there's effective ways past ASLR or whatever other mitigations are in place, uh, but you know any time there's a network-facing Windows remote code exec, like it always has the potential to go um, horribly wrong or horribly right, depending on how you feel about the internet being well, melted. You know, I mean, what's on the internet is one thing, but we've seen other instances, even as recently as 2017, with stuff like NotPetya where yes. it doesn't have yeah. to be on the internet. You know, once this thing starts ricocheting around, you know, once a worm starts ricocheting around in like corp to corp VPNs, um, <laughs> you know, boom, it just winds up everywhere, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but I just didn't want to not mention this bug and then it burns down the world and then, yes. uh, you know, uh, we have to cop to, to binning it um, next week. Oh, and Microsoft, big news, Adam, big news of the day. Uh, Microsoft <laughs> is shifting to a new threat actor naming taxonomy. Um, which I guess is great because, I mean, they're kind of stealing a little bit of thinking from CrowdStrike here, though, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, naming naming taxonomy, I mean, even just any any threat intel people you talk to, you know, once you start arguing about, you know, 
um, the finer details of how they cluster groups and how they categorize them and name them and so on and so forth. Everyone's got an opinion. And you is can, it a is it a fuzzy Chulima? Is it a yeah. you know? Is it a Dev seventeen fifty four? Is it a you know? It's so ridiculous. I I, I, yeah. I see what Microsoft's trying to do here, which is to be authoritative, but you know, can they pull it off? <laughs> well, it's certainly more sensible than the previous set of names because they've been making things that are yeah, uh, Mercury. Memorable. Gee, let's Google that. Yeah, well, exactly right. Yeah. So it, it makes it easier to Google. It makes it easier to talk about. They've also got um, uh, suffixes that kind of indicate whether they're like financial actors or private sector or nation states and so on and so forth, which we've seen in other naming schemes with, you know, kittens being Iran or, or whatever else. Um, I think Mercury that we talked about earlier is now Mango Sandstorm. There you which, go. you know, sounds like a flavor of smoothie to me. Not to be confused with sandworm. Good job, Microsoft. Yes, yeah, so uh, I, mean, I guess anything that makes it easy to talk about is good, but I, at the very least, I am very grateful of how many meetings they must have had to arrive at this naming scheme and that it wasn't me. Yeah, well, so, let's, I mean, yeah, I, I edit Catalan's, you know, podcast scripts that are read by Claire Ed. I edit them three times a week and it's like, so often it's like, they're known as this, also as this, also as this, you know, and it's yeah, like, yeah. So oh, now we've got another God. also to add, so that's good. <laughs> uh, um, now, of course, uh, also while we're on break, we saw one of the dumbest uh, intelligence leaks ever, uh, which is this kid, you know, from the Air National Guard, like dropping highly classified docs into his Discord to impress his teenage pals, which now, for some reason, the right wing in America is trying to say that he's a whistleblower, which is so weird because he was like putting the documents there and saying, don't show these to anyone, which is a strange way to blow the whistle. Um, yeah, so the whole thing's just deeply weird and deeply American. Um, but we got to find out some cool stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of the some of the leaks have definitely been interesting. There's been some some good stories and and details and things, but God, just so dumb. Oh, and the takes like that's been the worst, the most damaging yes. thing about this whole thing have been the takes because uh, the yeah, having to read them on on oh you know, God. social media or whatever else. Yeah, so tedious. it's been terrible. Yes. And like, yeah, okay, impact. Um, you know, ranging from air eh to um, okay, quite serious in in a batch of leaks like this. Right, the world will continue to spin. I can't imagine it'll have a tremendous effect on the outcome of the of the war. Uh, in Ukraine, which is what a lot of the documents were were dealing with, um, but my God, just the takes, just takes everywhere. But uh, Kim Zetter uh, uh, has written up one of these documents, which which apparently claims that hacktivists uh, uh, managed to own a Canadian gas pipeline company and cause some damage, at least to their bottom line. But the details are really 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 unclear here and it looks like it was yeah one of these um uh one of these russian hacktivists and they were being handled by someone from fsb so they were like we have access to this company and the fsb person's like wait don't do anything yet you know blah 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 blah, and sending them instructions so it's interesting from that perspective but we don't really know what happened here yeah, it, it, it was certainly interesting. Um, and, you know, there's been plenty of evidence in the past of kind of relationships between the FSB and the various Russian, you know, hacker groups and sort of semi-state-directed versus, you know, uh, the other options for state-affiliated hacking. But, yeah, details pretty thin, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, so it's not even clear, like, that there was some sort of ICS attack or, you know, they said that they'd caused them damage to their their money, basically, right? But go go read Kim Zetter's write-up of that because it is interesting. Um, but we did have some interesting ICS news, actually, uh, while we were away, Adam, which as it turns out, you remember that 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 hack in Oldsmar, Florida, uh, where someone tried to release deadly concentrations of chemicals into the water supply? Uh, and it was such a weird story at the time because there was no follow-up, right? There was no attribution. The whole thing just sort of went quiet. Um, yeah, it looks like it never happened. And that might be why. Yes, the uh, investigation appears to have concluded that uh, it was probably not an external attacker, that it was, you know, just a, a typo, you know, of someone actually intentionally accessing the system. Someone hit the wrong button, basically. Someone hit the wrong button and got spooked by the mouse moving remotely via TeamView or whatever it was, which may not have even been related, we don't know. But yeah, net result seems to be it didn't actually happen. It wasn't, uh, you know, the cybers and every vendor's slide deck that you've seen presented in the last three years... Uh, they mentioned it, uh, turned out, yeah, didn't happen. But there was another one of these. I don't know if you remember, but there was another one. I think it was a water, uh, also a water treatment plant where someone hacked in from Russia. You know what I mean? And we're in there and then they got evicted and whatever. And it turned out it was actually one of the employees who was on vacation in Russia logging in to do work. 
Do you remember that one? <laughs> it's rings of bell. It rings a bell. bell. You know, so this is the yeah. second one that I can think of where it's like, ooh, ICS hack. And it's like, it's not. It's actually staff doing stuff that they're supposed to be doing. In this case, it looked like a fat finger, but um, but just hey, back on those leaks, uh, real quick. I I've dropped a bunch of links into this week's show notes for people to have a look. The most interesting thing about them, I think, is the was the OSINT that was used to track this guy down. And Eric Toller over at Bellingcat uh, did a did a tremendous job of like matching, you know, finding the guy's Instagram and then matching the countertop, the kitchen countertop that was visible in photos of the classified documents to pictures on Instagram, like various patterns in the synthetic stone. You know, so the the joke is that it was uh, counter intelligence. Oh. <laughs> um, so that was really interesting. Like, and then you you also had figures like Glenn Greenwald criticizing the media for like trying to identify who leaked these documents, which seems a strange thing to do. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know what goes on in that guy's head, but yeah, the whole thing, the whole thing's just been uh, extremely strange. My favorite part of all of this is the Washington post after one day had spoken to this guy's associates. They had a video of him. They had his first name. They had the state where he was located. They had audio recordings of him. And then they still wrote in their story that they wondered if the FBI would be able to find him. And it's like, guys, if you turn that up in a day, like this guy's going to be in cuffs imminently. And uh, that is, of course, uh, what happened. But yeah, any final thoughts there, Adam, on this leak? Uh, I mean, I guess the real the real loser through all of this process is going to be all of the people in the Air National Guard and presumably a whole bunch of other Department of Defense uh, entities that are going to have to do like thousands of hours of extra, you know, computer-based training or whatever to tell them not to take photos yeah, that's what documents and stick them don't on put discord, them in discord so. yeah oh there's yeah, also been like, calls for for the uh you know intelligence community to like surveil internet chat rooms for classified material which is just really dumb and also illegal <laughs> and it's never going to happen and yeah takes, so many bad takes. takes it takes all right adam so that is many. it for this week's news thanks for joining me mate i'll catch you next week yeah thanks so much pat talk to you then all right and now we're going to hear from chris hughes this week's sponsor is nuclear security who make vulnerability like aggregation and management software and uh, instead of uh, sending one of their own staff, they sent Chris along to talk about vulnerability prioritization and uh, the latest science in Vuln management. Here is Chris, who starts off by introducing himself. My name is Chris Hughes. Uh, I'm a CISO and co-founder at a company named Acquia. Uh, we're a cybersecurity services firm working in the United States with federal agencies and the private sector as well. And uh, I've run into nuclear security doing the research I've done for a book on software supply chain security where I dove really deep on vulnerability prioritization, uh, vulnerability databases and scoring methodologies and all things around uh, vulnerability management. And that's how I kind of came across some of their research and some of the things they're up to. And you just, you just mentioned the thing that we're going to be talking about today, which is vulnerability prioritization, right? Like how you can take this mass of, you know, so many CVEs in your environment and actually decide which ones uh, deserve your priority. This is a complicated topic. People might think it's simple. You know, CVSS was designed to kind of address this, right? Big number, patch it. But that's not always the way it works out, is it? Why don't you start off by explaining to our wonderful audience uh, why this is such a complicated thing? Yeah, you threw out, you know, CVSS, which is a common vulnerability scoring system, you know, run by an organization named FIRST. Uh, and, you know, typically that's how we've done it is we've kind of prioritized uh, vulnerabilities when it comes to severities based on CVSS, you know, criticals, moderates, highs, lows, that kind of a thing. Uh, but the problem there is there's no real context uh, in that equation in terms of, you know, how it is even with your application is it actually reachable or exploitable. Uh, you know, uh, do you have mitigating controls in place? You know, what's the criticality of the system that the vulnerability applies to? Uh, so everyone kind of just takes this, you know, a blunt instrument of CVSS when it comes to vulnerability management. And it's definitely not the best way to approach the situation. Uh, you know, as I found out through research and writing and working on a book I talked about for software supply chain security, uh, you know, I came to find out that, you know, essentially almost all vulnerabilities, like a small subset, less than 10% or 15% or so, are actually exploitable in terms of CVSS. Uh, so a lot of those vulnerabilities that we're throwing over the fence to developers and, you know, engineers and such are just wasting their time, causing a lot of toil, frustration, and they have to go, they're kind of guilty until proven innocent, you know? They have to go and yeah. try to rationalize and justify all the vulnerabilities to you rather than actually focusing on what's exploitable. Yeah, I mean, the the problem with context, though, is by its nature, it's organization specific. And it's kind of, you know, having awareness of the context around any CV in your organization. It's so much work. Like, how do you actually begin to put yourself in a position where you can even understand, you know, the context for, for a bug in your org, right? Because 
it's so different. Like, is there a standardized, a standard way that you can go about trying to establish processes to help you get that context? Or does that also vary between organizations? Yeah, then, you know, I hate to give the political answer. It does depend, but there are some promising things in the industry that are underway. You know, the same organization that runs uh, CVSS, uh, they also have an effort called EPSS, which is the Exploitability Prediction Scoring System, if you've ever heard of that. And what that does is it goes and assigns an exploitability score, probability to each CVE, for example, that's an NVD, the NIST uh, National Vulnerability yeah. Database. Uh, and, they, you know, it's about an 80% improvement in terms of actually, you know, focusing on exploitable or likely to be exploitable vulnerabilities rather than every CVE just based on a CVSS score. Uh, yeah. and there's also I mean, a CVSS other... will just tell you how bad it is. I mean, ease of exploitability is going to be in there, but likelihood, I understand why you'd want to break that out in, into a different metric, but it's still not going to be a context-aware number. You know, like you can't have a context-aware number. That's not how context works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there are, I mean, there are, uh, you know, features of CVSS as it's designed, you know, they have a base score, which is what most people use just right out of the box. They focus on the base score, but there are other, you know, aspects of it they call environmental, environmental or temporal uh, aspects. And that gets into some of the context of the environment, you know, things like that. But honestly, organizations are just drowning in so many vulnerabilities when they look at their, you know, applications or cloud environments and on and on uh, that they simply just don't have the time to kind of dig into that. Uh, and that's why something like EPSS is promising. Uh, there's also some efforts out of organizations like CISA and uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, you know, with an effort known as uh, the stakeholder-specific uh, vulnerability scoring yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, we spoke about that with Scott uh, previously, and that one sounds pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah, that one kind of takes you through a methodology of trying to use like a, a tree, essentially looking at the context, the, the vulnerability, you know, uh, the maturity of exploits available in the uh, in the environment, you know, for example, in the ecosystem. And trying to do some prioritization. Then obviously we're seeing organizations like Nucleus Security. Uh, they're starting to do some promising things around using threat intelligence to kind of drive some of your vulnerability prioritization efforts too. You know, looking at the industry you're in, the organization you are, and other types of organizations. You know, how are they being attacked? What kind of vulnerabilities are being used in those those attacks, those exploits? And trying to drive some you know prioritization around that front too. Yeah, and I mean that makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you've got something that might have a lower CVSS score, but you know it's being used in a bug chain to burn people down with ransomware, maybe that's one you want to get on top of, right? So you know, I mean that's the that's the external context piece. I guess one the the part that I'm interested in is how you can set up processes to quickly establish the impact of a bug in your environment. And that's going to involve a lot of inventory, a lot of understanding of, you know, when it when it comes into more the you know, software library stuff and 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 uh, supply chain stuff. That's going to be you know having a deep understanding of re applications and you know, I mean, is this even worth trying to understand, or do you think we're going to be in a position where between the CVSS, the stakeholder specific stuff, and now this sort of uh, likelihood of exploitability score, do you think we're going to get to a point where metrics like that are going to be enough for us to make a reasonably accurate uh, determination as to what we, we should be prioritizing? Yeah, in my opinion, it really depends on obviously like the size of your organization, the size of your security team and, you know, the maturity of their, their expertise and stuff. But I think that going with that, you know, that approach of coupling CVSS, EPSS, you know, threat intelligence, uh, you know, some of those mechanisms we just talked about is going to get you a much better answer than just going with the legacy way of CVSS. And, you know, the thing is context, like we're talking about environmental context and specific to your organization and the system and your architecture, uh, that takes human, you know, capital, cognitive uh, load. Uh, so doing that across, you know, thousands of vulnerabilities. Or but tens see, of this is <laughs> this yeah. is what I mean. Like, is it just too much work? And, and maybe we're better off coming up with some of these shorthand metrics that can at least get us part of the way, right? Like, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's going to be the case for any large complex environment, you know, because, you know, we, we see there's a, a need for speed in the industry. We're trying to avoid, you know, security introducing friction to, you know, work, developer workflows and things like that. Uh, so I think we're definitely going to see a default to, you know, CVSS plus coupling it with things like threat intelligence and EPSS, because uh, trying to do contextual, you know, uh, analysis of every single vulnerability in, in an environment is going to be incredible, incredibly complex. And then like you talked about, you talk about software supply chain security. Most organizations don't even have a good software asset inventory or a software component inventory of open source software they're using and, you know, what's actually reachable and uh, in their code base, for example, you know, so it's, it's really challenging to do that at scale, basically in a large yeah. complex environment. I mean, you know, this is interesting because I, I recently had a long conversation with a friend who was auditing a Java app, right? And they were, they were looking for RCE in this Java app and they noticed there was a bunch of vulnerable includes in it 
And then it was like, well, they don't help me with my RCE because I can't actually reach these ones because, you know, say that function's not called or, you know, you can't reach this bit or you can't, there's no path to go over here. And, that, you know, this is, a, this is a great example of where you've got vulnerable code, which is technically a part of your application, but it's not actually introducing any, any type of vulnerability, right? Which is kind of also, and I want to I now talk a bit about SBOM because it's an area of your expertise. You know, it's kind of a limitation with SBOM as well, right? Because you can have a lot of information about, uh, you know, vulnerable code in your supply chain, but it, it just might not impact you even if it's present. Yeah, you're spot on there. And that's kind of one of the critiques and pushback from industry when it comes to SBOM is that, you know, you have this massive amount of information and visibility that maybe you didn't have when it came to, you know, visibility of your software components and your, your applications you're consuming, whether from a COTS provider, a cloud, you know, cloud provider, you know, or your internal development teams that have compiled software of, you know, uh, you know, from scratch or open source software components. But what of those components in terms of vulnerabilities are actually exploitable? What should, what should you care about? And that's why we're seeing, uh, you know, efforts like vulnerability exploitability exchange. If you've heard of that mentioned, that's come out of the same, you know, organizations like CISA and NTIA and others. And that's trying to, you know, provide like a kind of companion document to an SBOM to say, you know, here are the vulnerabilities, but of those vulnerabilities, me as a supplier, I'm kind of communicating what is actually exploitable so that you as a consumer know what to focus on and be concerned with within the application. But, but, but like how, how granular do we need to get with our SBOMs, which is like, oh, okay, it includes this library, but only uses these functions or includes this library, but there's this other bit of code that does sanitization. So this is what I'm getting at, right? Like it's context isn't just about like a CVE in some Windows component that might be used on some servers over there, which aren't exposed to the internet. Like when you're getting into actual application bugs in, in your enterprise, like it gets even more complicated. Like you can't, come up with a manifest, a simple manifest that really tells you um, the impact of some of these things, right? Yeah, no, you're spot on. And then, you know, another factor is that not all vulnerabilities have, you know, publicly disclosed vulnerabilities and CVE IDs ass assigned to them. Yeah. So you talk about software supply chain security, you know, a CVE is kind of a, a lagging indicator of risk. At that point, we know there's a mm. vulnerability, we know there's some risk, but there's a lot of leading indicators of risk in terms of, you know, where are these people from that are creating these uh, projects? How many maintainers does it have? How quickly do they respond to vulnerabilities in terms of as a project or you know kind of a group, for example? So uh, it's complicated. Is it? Yes. Like <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about SBOM, right? Like we did see a lot of talk out of the White House, uh, out of the U.S. government generally, talking about how you know U.S. government suppliers were going to have to provide SBOMs, and they eventually wound that back. And do you do you have? I mean, you know, this is an area that you're really plugged into. Um, do you have any idea why they wound that back? Because it's my feeling that eventually they just realized that the payoff wasn't quite worth the effort um, because of this complexity. That's just the sense I get. So, so I don't know that I agree there. I think there's some, you know, there's some people that held that opinion, but there's obviously a, a very powerful lobbying uh, effort in, underway as well. That so you reckon it was the lobbyists who did it in? I, I think they definitely had a part in it, but, you know, and, and then also the approach of it was very flawed from the get-go. If you look at the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, where they had that language yeah. around S-bombs, uh, it called for vulnerability-free software, which we all know is kind of no, ridiculous. I know, uh, I know, I know. You know. And then, so, and now there's other organizations like the uh, OMB, Office of Management and Budget, who are now calling for organizations to provide, you know, not only uh, artifacts like an SBOM, for example, in some cases, but also self-attest to adhering to things like NIST, you know, Secure Software Development Framework and that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, industry did have some rational pushback in terms of we have these competing standards of SBOM formats like Cyclone DX and SPDX, for example. Uh, the tooling ecosystem is still maturing in its, in, it, in its infancy. You know, most federal agencies and organizations aren't in a position to either create or ingest, you know, S-bombs and store and analyze them at scale. This is why I think where we've wound up here is actually quite sensible, which is they've indicated that it's somewhere we're going to go eventually, right? But pulling the trigger on it now, I mean, honestly, I was all for it. And then I thought maybe this is a bit soon, right? Like uh, lumping everyone with this requirement immediately. But, you know, at least at least flagging it as something that's, that's coming up. Because it's always seemed like, you know, you got to collect the data, you know, SBOM sort of almost something you got to do on faith because you got to get everyone to do it. You got to collect the data and then you got to figure out what to do with it, right? Like it's not like we, we understand right out the gate all of the uses for that sort of data. But I think there's, a, there's an agreement that at least moving towards a situation where we're collecting it is, is going to be a winner. Yeah, I think you're spot on is like, you know, I think 
you know, I, I'm kind of the opinion that it is early. There's a lot of ways to, uh, a lot of way to go in terms of maturing, in terms of tooling and capabilities, internal processes, and what do we do with these things? How do we actually make them actionable? Uh, but we don't want to let perfect be the enemy of good either. The alternative yeah. is like kind of just bury our head in the sand and we keep blindly consuming software with no knowledge of what's in it. Uh, but then again, <laughs> like there is a bit of faith involved. Like even the vulnerability exploitability exchange I just talked to you about, uh, a vendor is essentially telling you what's exploitable or not. You have to trust what they're telling you unless you're going well, to have they a- don't, they don't exactly have a fantastic track record of uh, getting that right, do they? No, not necessarily exactly. And then, you know, that's where third-party researchers and things like that will come into play. Uh, but trying to do this for every piece of software at scale is going to be complicated. There's going to have to be, you know, despite the industry term of zero trust that's so prevalent, there's going to have to be some trust involved in this process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Chris Hughes, thanks so much for joining us to walk us through, uh, you know, the latest science, I guess, in, in vuln management, um, which has become, you know, a properly established discipline doing, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost like it's hip again, right? Does it feel like that at the moment? Yeah, I definitely think so. It's kind of, you know, I think with the uh, emergence of cloud and cloud adoption and really, you know, driving and now AppSec and, you know, DevSecOps and all those things kind of driving, I think people are starting to take a new look at vulnerability management. How do, you know, how have we done this traditionally? And like, hey, maybe there's some better ways to do this. The ways we've done it historically haven't made a lot of sense. Uh, so it's definitely, you know, I think it's hip again. There's a lot of companies trying to innovate on this topic as, as well as academia and, you know, others as well. All right. Well, uh, yeah, Chris Hughes, thanks so much for joining us. That was all really interesting stuff. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. It was a good time. That was Chris Hughes of Aquia there. And big thanks to Nuclear Security for using their sponsor slot to get Chris on. Uh, I found that really interesting. I hope you did too. Uh, But that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren. And we publish that one into the Risky Business News RSS feed. Uh, But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.